Airbus.net Podcast Network. Guys, it's that time again. It is digital noise time. Digital noise time. Digital, digital noise, noise time. time. Digital noise time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm joined here by my friend Aaron. It's lovely to be here, all. Always good to have you back on the show again. It's nice. It's nice. Nobody is as enthusiastic about doing this as you, like <laughs> ever. That I've heard. they're like, oh my god, I get more movies to watch. I'm like, you know, about half of them are gonna kill you, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's either they're half great, half bad, or they're all just kind of okay. Yeah. Which is worse somehow when they're all just just there. I would rather have a film that makes no bones about being truly and utterly just like horribly bad as long as it's not boring as yep. opposed to a film that's just okay but really dull. Yeah, because at least then I have something to get pissed off about. <laughs> <laughs> you have specific things you could mention. Sometimes the ones that are like, yeah, it's not like anything's wrong with it. I just, eh, eh, eh. Anyway, uh, before we get started, let's thank our sponsor, which is Circle Brewing Company. They are located in Austin, Texas at 2340 West Breaker Lane, where they have actually a really sweet little setup in the middle of like this kind of industrial park that not a lot of other stuff is there. So they have this giant parking lot all to themselves, which is really so you can always park. And they have a nice little tap room, and they have food trucks that pull up, and outdoor seating, which will be better when the weather warms up. But they have a lot of cool beers. They provide us with beers for like like Aaron can be drinking right now. In fact. Uh, after hearing Chris talk about their hef for quite a long time, I'm finally getting to have one, and holy shit, it's really great. It's pretty good, huh? Yeah. yeah you can't say shit on here, man. This I is mean, for kids. Uh, holy, holy heck. Come on. Heck, fuck, heck. man. Get it together. <laughs> I mean, just goddamn it. I don't know how to do this. Uh, they have lots of beers. You can get them in stores. You can get them at liquor stores. You can get them. I, our local 7-Eleven has them now that they have a, now that like the man has woken up to craft brewing. All the 7-Elevens have a craft brewing section. They're like, wow, I never thought I'd see the day, but they tend to stock the circle brewing. Craft brewing is no longer punk, man. It's mainstream. Uh, well, it, it can be punk and mainstream. <laughs> I was going to say look at Green Day, but don't. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, look at Bad Religion, I guess. I don't know. There, I there we go. I, I guess. Um, but they are terrific. Please check them out. Also, uh, realize that the only reason we can keep doing this show and all the shows on one of us.net, we all of which, by the way, have their own iTunes and Spotify feeds now, uh, se- separate just to those shows, including this one is because of the subscribers. We have a subscription model where you can uh, basically send us two, five, ten, or $25 a month. There's different tiers that go with that uh, bonus content you get. And our latest thing that we added is we have a private Facebook group only for subscribers, but subscribers at any level. If you email me after you get a subscription or after you've already, if you already have one, say, hey, I want to be on there so I can see what's in that private group. I will add you to said private group. Uh, keep in mind, if you want to do that, because of the vagaries of Facebook, we have to be Facebook. Facebook friends first before I can add you to the group. I'm not sure And why. it is totally worthy. Uh, there was a gathering podcast not too terribly long ago, and I hopped in for about 15 minutes when I had a, just a little bit of time in the evening. You're a dad. And, so. Yeah, I'm a dad. I don't have much time. but uh, And it was the uh, Marco and uh, T. 
two other people discussing what the best fast food, fast food place in Texas is. You'd be surprised how often at the gathering off mic that is the discussion yeah. that ends up happening. I don't know It was why. between In-N-Out and Whataburger, and Whataburger rightfully won. Oh, of course it did. There's never – anybody who says the other is wrong. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I work with a bunch of people from California. They don't get it. It's like, have you guys actually been to Whataburger? Because I feel like you're just not going to be stubborn. Because once you did, you'd, like, you'd have to redefine your schema. It's clearly the better. And certainly bigger. Jesus Christ. Even the basic hamburger at Whataburger is like huge. Well, it's it's a Texas restaurant. That's why. Exactly. Uh, but become a subscriber. Help us out. Help you out by putting out more podcasts. And like I said, that new South by Southwest is right around the corner. I'll be hanging out with Sir Martin Thomas from Double Toasted for pretty Ooh-hoo. much the whole thing. He finally, he's been like trying to get a badge for weeks. And finally, last late last night, he got the confirmation he's getting one. So he's like, oh, thank God. But we'll be hanging out and filming just for you subscribers our madcap antics on the streets of Austin during South by with lots of weird special events like the Good Omens uh, uh, set up. Up and we're Ooh. trying to get into the Game of Thrones one. We don't know if that's going to happen or not. Yeah, probably not. It's the last season, but the Good Omens should be good. Well, no, I mean it's a, it's a like you remember they did Westworld last year, yeah. that huge thing. Well, apparently they're doing something like that for Game of Thrones, but like the RCPs went out, like we're done in like five minutes. <laughs> but last year for Westworld, everybody who just showed up and got in the standby line actually got in. So uh, we're going to give it a shot. I'm just going to relay my uh, prediction that will not happen, but I'm still. I think that at the very ending of Game of Thrones, a portal is going to open up and a bomber is going to fly overhead and just nuke the Westeros. <laughs> just kill everyone. This is a magical bomber? Yeah, no, no, no. A time-traveling bomber. Well, there you hasn't know, been they any... can have a spin-off show about what happened to the crew. Well, there that's already, a World War there II already drama. is like two spin-off shows planned. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, good lord. Unfortunately, one of them is a prequel. Ladies and gentlemen, I beg of you. Stop making your follow-up series to big series prequel series. Thank you. Stop doing Thank it. Thank you. What's next? Yeah, I mean, not like, what came before. Yeah, exactly. Like, we, we, it keeps happening even with Star Trek. I'm like, do you know how long I've been waiting to see what happens after Voyager? My yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> like, it really is ridiculous. I'm like, I have no idea what happens after this point. And no, don't tell me to go read the, and, the non-canon books because let's they be don't honest. Count. We never will. Well, no, we will. Cause that, uh, the new show, one of the four or five new announced Star Trek shows is with Patrick Stewart. Uh, p- continuing on his role as as Picard, but not captaining a starship, which means it's going to be Starfleet again. You know what? I never actually thought about the fact that that takes place after Voyager. It does, but you're right. That makes sense. No, no clue yet whether the other shows where those will be because there's one that's um, a sitcom that's about the people who do the grudge work on the ship below called Lower oh. Decks, and then there's the spy one. Yeah, uh, yeah um, section thirty-one, which is which is continuous, obviously with with Discovery, because yeah. it's the characters from there. And then there is a animated show that they say that's for younger people, but no idea if that's supposed to be canon or not. So, and then talk apparently of even another one, but we shall Aye. see. I know. Well, I mean, I just want more to see what's in the future. I want to see the Star Trek: The Next Next Generation. That's all I'm <laughs> saying. I want to see. What's, I want that ship with the third nacelle up top <laughs> that we saw in All Good Things that Riker was flying. I was like, oh yeah, give me that. I really thought you were going to make a third nipple joke there. No, why would I make a third nipple joke? I don't know. Third, and then the word was an N. That's where my mind went. Okay, fair enough. You have a lot of witches in your family. I do. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, let's get to what we're actually here for, which <laughs> is to review. No, some it's fast food and Star Trek talk. Uh, we are starting off by talking about a really all, all but forgotten 1997 mob film that I think really needs to be rediscovered by a new generation, which is Donnie Brasco. And I think part of the reason it's gotten ignored is because everyone has kind of turned their nose noses up, and rightfully so, at Johnny Depp, who himself just career-wise has kind of driven his career into the ground by nonstop playing guys with goofy hats. Well, he's... And he's starting to Mel Gibson, too, where he is getting increasingly more and more toxic in the real world outside of his movies. I mean, it seems like the only real thing he did was, which is not, I don't mean to make it sound unforgiving, like Gibson was doing one thing after another. seems like for Depp, it was pretty much, oh, it turns out he was beaten on Amber Heard, so that's not good. And no one really wants to see him after that. But, um... You know, this was a long time ago. This was pre-beating of of Amber Heard. (laughs) I guarantee you he's not getting any money for this bare-bones Mill Creek release of this film. Yeah, which I don't even think had a menu on it. It just cut right to the movie. I mean, every once in a while the Mill Creek stuff will come with, like, uh, some some extra stuff. It's always ported over from an older version. But even most of the time they don't even port original extras. Which is fine. If you want a really cheap version of a good movie, you know, hey, it's still the Blu-ray version of Donnie Nebraska, yep. which and, is kind of a classic. And it did look really nice. Um, it is loosely based on the true story of really the most badass undercover guy in history of the FBI, uh, Joseph D. Pistone, who Johnny Depp is playing. This guy was really, I mean, he went undercover for like a decade or something. It was yeah, I thought it was, like, it was like three or four years. Well, it was longer Easily. than that. Was it? Yeah. Okay. It was like just three or four years when he was in. <laughs> he was for a long time setting himself up as like this diamond thief like merchant guy on the outskirts. But um, yeah, this was nominated for Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, the idea is is that he is kind of hanging around. Johnny Depp playing this character uh, uh, is hanging around the outskirts of this mob scene and he eventually has a, a the mob version of a meet-cute with Al Pacino. I mean, it's a mob film. If it doesn't have Al Pacino and it's missing something by yeah. definition. Who, who is a surprisingly shystery guy. Like, Al Pacino, I'm so used to him playing calm, confident, collected guys who are in command of the room. And this is the first time I've ever really seen Al Pacino play kind of a weaselly dude. Well, it's because, like, a lot of times if he's in these things, he's, like, top brass. And here he's, I mean, he's a made man, but... He's like not very well respected. Uh, he's kind of other guys in the group make fun of him, kind yeah, of. Yeah, he's, he's never he's the gonna, butt of the joke. He's never going to make it up to the top, but he's still a made man. So when he ends up becoming friends with Johnny Depp's character uh, and vouches for him to be let in to, to help out on jobs and do whatever, the guy's like, "Okay, sure, whatever." Who all immediately really like. Uh, him as well, or like, oh yeah, this this kid's kind of on top of it, uh, much to the chagrin of Al Pacino, who's constantly like, "What are you doing? I brought yeah. you in, and now you're kissing ass with <laughs> these guys." He's very insecure, no question about it. About and even about that friendship. That yeah, they have he's together. insecure about everything in the movie. Like he he is uh, that guy in um, The Wire who just fucks everything up in season two. You know, like he's that kind of a character in this movie, but. but, but Quite frankly, that being said, as much as I didn't like the character, I loved Al Pacino pulling it off. He does a kind of a good job being Weasley. He feels like this old man who he knows he's past his prime and he's just given up and is now just kind of sad and upset about everything that happens. I mean, you say you don't like his character. I actually kind of did. I mean, he is still a criminal and he is Weasley, but 
he's the one of only one of these guys who truly seems to have a real heart and feel human. Like the rest of the guys are kind of just mob stereotypes. He really transcends yeah, that and becomes true. a real person. And we see how much his friendship with Johnny Depp's character really means to him. Like he actually treasures the relationship they have. And as it goes along, we see despite him being an undercover cop and his job is to get to the top and bust all these guys, he starts feeling pretty bad that like this guy's going to get in trouble too. He's like, man, this guy's not that bad. I actually really like this guy. And it's, he's got problems at home. And the thing is like, you know, he talks like, Hey, what are you going to do? Like he talks like that. That's not how he actually talks. Right. He had to learn these accents yeah. and expressions. And he's got to the point as we see with his home life, he can't really break out of it. He's been doing this so long. He doesn't know how to go back to who he was much to the chagrin of his wife and children. Yeah. Who he doesn't see for like six months at a time. And yeah, it, it Admittedly, that was the part of the movie that I ended up struggling with the most. Because, like, like you said, as much as I had my issues with Al Pacino, it was very culture shocky. By the end, they have some really powerful scenes, and you do feel for his character. I actually had a hard time feeling for Johnny Depp's character because the first time you see him not in character, mm-hmm. and I put that in quotes, he's still a shit guy. Right. <laughs> just, and so it was hard for me to watch the quote unquote hero of the movie kind of be a semi abusive dickhead to his wife and a distant dad to his kids. But, uh,. <laughs> I kind of felt I wish I had seen more of the before, just something to see who he was so so I could understand what the transition was instead of just being, no, he's already this. Right. And then that's where he is for the rest of the movie. I mean, movie. they definitely tell you instead of showing you, but it yeah. is very expressed. Hey, you but, never used to be anything like this. I get that this is incredibly the most difficult job there is. But at the same point, I was at his wife, Van Hersh, at points, I was like, hey, lady, come on, calm down a little. The guy <laughs> is undercover with the mafia. Right? It is, the, believe me, it is the hardest job Although, that exists. She she does a good job on the role, but I feel like this is, uh, this is like the wife in um, Breaking Bad, where, yeah, she did a great job, but I feel bad because she's just there for us to kind of not like. <laughs> well, Even though, if you really think about it from her perspective, she has every right to be as pissed as she see, does. I never had the thing where I didn't like but, her. I was always like, in Breaking Bad, I was always like, I totally feel for him. I was like, screw her. And I'm like, are you guys serious? He is a criminal. He is no, breaking every law. He's no. killing people. He's treating his family like shit. I have zero sympathy for Walter White by the third season or no, so. I'm with you on that. Yeah. But what I mean is, like, she's but, always angry. Every, right. every scene she's in, she's angry at him. And that's the same thing She has here. a justification for it, but it's That's still. the same thing here, only in this particular case, Johnny Depp is not, in fact, a criminal who is doing yeah. bad things, <laughs> other than what he's supposed to be doing by the behest of the FBI. <laughs> you know, I've got to, like, come on, cut him a little slack. Hopefully, and, when this is all over, generally speaking, guys who go undercover that long never have to go undercover again for the rest although of Although I... <laughs> I love that when they, and especially since this is based off a true story and this is, of course, we know where it's going to eventually go. When we start going down the route of him being revealed to have been undercover, the way it happens is so just like, yo, bitches, he was undercover. Ha ha. <laughs> just like, oh my God, you're going to kill his whole family. What are I, you doing? I ended up going down, falling down a deep wiki hole after watching the movie uh, with like finding out the true story, which surprisingly happened a lot like it did in the actual movie. Um, it felt like it. It's, this felt like a docudrama almost. It's, I mean, there's a lot of differences with like the Johnny Depp, the, the Donnie Brasco and his home family life 
lot of that was dramatized for the screen. But um, the, the way it all played out in the end was more or less how it actually played out. They don't get to the stuff in real life, which is weirdly – Al Pacino's character was eventually forgiven by the mob, which never happens with things like this. Well, especially when you watch the movie, there's a very different read on kind of what happens towards the end with yeah, it's left. It's left somewhat like you you can decide for yourself what happens, but you think you probably know. It's a Sopranos ending. Yeah, it yeah. is. <laughs> well, let's go into our next film. By the way, that had no extra features of any kind. That's yeah, Mill Creek no, for which- you, but... There were several movies this week that had nothing. Well, we had a, I think it was because there were a couple of Mill Creek things, but that, yep. that's generally the case. They're for inexpensive versions of great films. They do a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, then next we have a new release, Widows. Now we did review this on our highly suspect reviews. You can go listen to the whole crew review it there if you want. Or you can listen to us talk about it here, or both. Directed by Steve McQueen, who, of course, uh, cut his teeth on the multiple Academy Award winning 12 Years a Slave. Now doing another film that is deeply couched in discussions of racism, and in this case, sexism. This is actually based on a television show from the 90s in Britain that was incredibly popular that apparently Steve McQueen and I forget one of the producers or writers was like really obsessed with growing up. And was like, years later, was like, hey, you know, it'd be cool if somebody made a movie out of that old show. That was a good show. Nobody in America knows about that show. <laughs> um, and boy, did they get a killer cast to Holy come on and do shit, this. Yeah. Uh, the idea is with one of the most interesting uses of that narratively makes sense in a, of a montage I've seen in a film. The movie starts with largely a montage of expressing here are all these really famous actors that you recognize, especially Liam Neeson, who are part of a heist crew that have been very successful over the years. But this was one heist too far, and they all died in the middle of doing Which- it. They died in a way that was so over the top mm-hmm. that it almost took me like another 20 minutes to get into the movie's flow. Yeah. Cause like it's in the opening scenes. I can talk about it. Like they get shot up. They get fucked up. The van they're in explodes this and is flips around. The first 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. It's a, it's a very quiet movie after that. You're like, where are you going to go from there movie? Well, the truth is the movie isn't about that sort of thing. It's about what happens to the people who are left in the wake of that, yep. which are the wives, the titular widows of all these characters, the lead character of which being, Viola Davis was married to Liam Neeson, who was definitely the heist master of that crew. Uh, I think that's not the term they use, but they should. And I think you you hit the nail on the head. And I know that this was a movie that had a lot of different conflicting opinions on it. It, And it's not really a thriller in the way that you expect it to be going in. It, It is very much about these three women dealing with the losses of their husband and trying to... It really just find out who they are after that's happened. The the primary woman being Michelle Rodriguez as well, uh, and Elizabeth Debicki, who had a really uh, a career elevating turn in this movie for sure. Oh, she was my favorite character. Yeah, my it, it was. It blew me away when I realized that she was the bad guy <laughs> and man from Uncle. I was like, oh, right? holy shit, have you improved? <laughs> but uh, we watch as. These ladies are trying to figure out what to do. A lot of the old da- Davis has been told, well, your husband uh, basically pulled a heist on something that belonged to another mob guy, to a made guy, and 
now he's liable for the debt of that money. And since he's dead, you're liable. And she's like, uh. Which is so bullshit. Yeah. I was like, how does this work? But um, I'm always looking at my wife going, you're not involved with the mob, are you? Because I don't get in trouble if you get taken out. Anyway, uh, so she finds this master book that Liam Neeson had been putting together, which was sort of like the all of his heists and everything he'd done and all his tips and tricks and all the stuff for the next big heist. All the things all lined out in there. And she's like, at first, like, well, maybe I can get rid of this debt by offering to sell it back to this guy. But then she goes, you know what? Fuck that. We're going to do this heist ourselves. <laughs> and she gets these women as, as well as uh, some other people along the way involved in said crime. And it is a slow burn film and it's a character film and everybody gets a chance to shine here. Like every character has their own arc and their own story and characters around them. If I have a complaint about this film, it's really that I felt like the, the, the twist at the end. I mean, thematically, I'm okay with it, but the way it comes off and the way it ties into like Carrie Coon's character, who's very briefly in this, I was all like, okay. It just felt very, like for a film that felt very, like almost art house, uh, you know, like Oscar, like aimed, it felt really chintzy, silly Hollywood thriller stuff. You know, it's interesting that I wasn't bothered by the twist, which kind of we all should have seen coming. It still kind of surprised me a little bit. but And that's because the way they handled the twist was so artfully filmed that I was into it. The thing that bothered me was the movie seems overstuffed. And mainly talking about the political side of things, which, like... Colin Farrell does an amazing job. The actor who plays the, um, uh, not the incumbent, but the challenging uh, alderman, he did a really great job. But I'm not saying that they, the scenes weren't interesting and they didn't say some really interesting topics, but I didn't need to see it. It was in cramming this movie. a lot of story into a yeah. film because it, it felt like they were really trying to cram, like, I think it was two seasons worth of material into one but, two hour film. And it, it does. It feels, and it all flows in. It's like all these stories. There's no story that's so completely on the side that it doesn't tie no. neatly into everything else in a integral way, including that little political story where he's running versus, uh, another, uh, like, uh, not incumbent, but, um, uh, the newcomer player, yeah, well, Brian Tyree Henry from Atlanta. Challenger, that's what I'm going to call it. Paperboy, <laughs> who is uh, himself, they're both involved in crime, just it, it, it seems like Brian Tyree Henry's character actually, to some degree, actually cares what happens to his neighborhood. Yeah, he, uh, it, it's it's odd because uh, the Colin Farrell plays a guy who hasn't really explicitly done too much non-white collar crime, but he also does not give a shit about the place that he lives in. Yeah. Whereas the other character him. is an explicit mobster. Like, no, he is a mobster going straight. We know about that from the very second he's introduced. But he really gives a shit about his uh, his community and really wants to improve it. And Colin so, Farrell like, is stepping into the shoes, basically, of his father, played by Robert Duvall, who's held this position for a long, 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 long time, and now is too ill to continue on. And... Is thoroughly as corrupt and racist and horrible. Oh, yeah, he's, as he's terrible. Get. But there's so many great side characters in this thing as well. I mean, just a lot of people that come uh, in. Honestly, here. just to say, like, this is my pick of the week. Oh wow! Out of all the movies I saw, I, which, granted, that's not to say this movie is amazing. It does have problems, but it was far and away the one I enjoyed the most. And the, there's an ending scene with Viola Davis that. 
I saw and I expected to go one way. And it's what they leaned into for the beginning of the scene. But just like the last 10 seconds of this movie almost brought me to tears. I wow. adored it. Uh, so this also has Cynthia Erivo, Garrett Dillahunt, Jackie Weaver, uh, Manuel Garcia Rolfo, John Bernthal, Lucas Haas, Matt Walsh. I mean, it's a huge cast, but I really have to mention Daniel Kalua, who plays kind of an enforcer, psychotic guy for Brian Tyree Henry, who has some of the most amazing scenes in this film. Oh, like, so I swear I never saw him before Get Out and, uh, uh, not Black Sheep, but uh, the Netflix one that I should know. I don't remember. But, um, like, I never saw him before those uh, roles. And now I see him everywhere, and he is always turning in an amazing performance. Well, yeah, after Get Out, it's like, come on. Like, <laughs> like the guy's got to be in everything from now on. Get used to the face. Um, he was in uh, uh, Black Panther, too, right? Yes, he was in Black Panther. Uh, I actually remember first seeing him in uh, this BBC series that sadly only got one show because it was so good, called The Fades, which was sort of a ghost horror show. Wait, was that the one with uh, Fitz from Fitzsimmons? Uh, as like the main character, uh, yes, and yes. Castecker, yes, uh, but was um, that was a great first season of a show, and then it just disappeared. Like I'm a lot of sure Natalie shows. Dormer was in that too, even yes, she was, and Tom Ellis. <laughs> uh, I, I uh, one of those shows, like it's been, it was years ago, but I still remember it finally. I'm pretty sure I have it on DVD. I don't even know. I think it's on Netflix even. But uh, the Blu-ray of this, or 4K, if you want to get that version, comes with some bonus features. Is the 52-minute Widows Unmasked, a Chicago story, which is the multi-part featurette you expect with this sort of thing, with lots of interviews, behind-the-scenes footage. There's a two-minute gallery, and that's about it. But you know, it's an hour-long. Making of that's not a bad feature. To have yeah, honestly, to like it, this movie was good enough. It's the first time I've actually sat down and legitimately watched a Stephen McQueen movie, and it it's gotten me interested enough that I want to go back and watch the movie he made about the hunger strike and Twelve Years a Slave. You've not watched Twelve Years a Slave. I have not watched Twelve Years. It's a really Slave. good. I've heard that. I don't remember the hunger strike one. What was that? Uh, it, it was his first movie. Oh, I, wanted, I don't think I saw it. Not shame. But I think it's called literally Hunger about oh. the IRA. Okay. And, and like a bunch of IRA prisoners go, well, we're not going to eat until this resolves. Hmm. And it was famous because there's a dialogue scene between him and a uh, kind of a local priest that is a 20 minute unbroken double shot of them at a table as they have this conversation. And it took them weeks to prep so they could do this all in just one take between him and Michael Fassbender. Okay. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I have seen it. I, you just forget stuff along yeah, you the forget way. Stuff. <laughs> uh, moving on, was it, we've got our uh, uh, entry from South Korea, which was actually the first Korean film ever actually accepted to the shortlist of the best foreign language film uh, awards the Oscars, although it didn't make it to the final nominees, and that is Burning, directed by Lee Chang Dong. Um, now, a lot of people, like, probably attention were called to this to some degree because Stephen Yuen from The Walking Dead has a role on, in this. Who, um, I had no idea he spoke Korean. Like... It's interesting. I automatically assumed that he was one of those guys who everyone would assume he speaks Korean, but he doesn't. And so it really surprised me it when did, he showed up. Just like, no, he's speaking fluent Korean. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know much about his history, but I can only assume, even though he is definitely, like, I think second generation American, I assume he was raised speaking both yeah, languages because he obviously been. speaks American, uh, or American English unaccented, <laughs> uh, with the American accent, if you will. Uh, so this movie, some people I know actually called this out as one of the best movies they saw last year, and some people I know called it one of the most boring movies they saw last year. I fall kind of in the middle. I felt in the latter. Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I'm sad because, I, I was hoping you'd be one of those people who were super excited by this because I thought, like, maybe you could explain some things well, to me. So like, <laughs> because Richard uh, Whitaker ain't here. So. I'll admit. So coming out of this, I'm really excited to see what this director does. Yeah. We did because, say the title, right? Burning? Yeah, Burning. Yeah. Because there, there are individual sequences that are really interesting. And actually, just, just to jump back. So the plot of the movie, as it were. It, it is about... One of the most suppressed individuals I've ever seen, just like super shy, doesn't really talk to anyone. He doesn't respond. He's very much um, Jong-Soo, like the character from The Driver, where just like he's monosyllabic. And he meets this but very- not as badass as the character. Not, not as badass at all. <laughs> he more, does not have an awesome jacket. It's more like you think he might have some kind of mental issue at first. But um, so he meets this really charismatic, really outgoing girl who knew him when he was younger and kind of starts hanging out with her and building a friendship with her. And even though she establishes you used to bully me when we were in school together, yeah, like like her first thing is the only thing you ever said to me is that I was ugly. Yeah. And she apparently got massive plastic surgery and now she's really cute. But she also said that he saved her, which yeah, like. So that's kind of a part of her character is whether or not she's telling the truth in these stories. But so they meet and they form a close bond and she goes to Africa for a few weeks while she's As gone. He takes care of her never seen cat and basically just kind of sits and becomes obsessed with her. He sits in her apartment and masturbates to pictures of her. Yes. Yeah. Well, while actually looking out the window, which was the weirdest thing, he never really looked at the pictures of her, but she shows back up with Steven Yun in tow, who is a wealthy South Korean and, it was basically the Gatsby of this film, yeah. who they even flat out call, basically, oh, he's like Gatsby. Even though he's not at all. I mean, he is in but, some ways. He's wealthy, he's mysterious, he has mysterious motives. Yeah, but it, it uh, I'm going to get into that later. Uh, um, but so they kind of form a trio up until a point where they end up on his back porch doing pot and... Doing the pot. That is the last he ever sees of the girl who he cares for. And that's when a sort of mystery opens. And that's when we find out that Stephen Yun has this obsession where every couple of months he goes and he tracks down a greenhouse and burns it down to the ground. Or does he? Or does he? <laughs> um, that's the thing is like the main character through this third act, which I don't want to get too specific about, is is desperately looking for this girl and starting to think, Maybe this guy did something to her. And part, and you can't help but go, come on, man. You're just way jealous. And also, well, let's not forget the last thing you said to this girl for the last time you saw her was something incredibly awful. Th- and th- that's kind of what killed the movie for me. First of all, it, it is super slow. And in the adage of begin as late as you can in the story, you could authentically cut an hour out of this movie and it would not drastically affect the, the way the story plays out. So there's a ton of padding and I kept wanting things to happen. You never really learn a lot about any of these characters personally despite it being a two and a half hour film and the moment he says that thing to her and and the last time he sees her it goes from oh you care for this person and you're 
you're trying to find out what happened to her to, oh, you're a creepy stalker who she's trying to avoid. And so that, that whole last third act was just a slog through an already kind of slow movie. Like, I really respect the way they shot certain sequences, and there's some really beautiful moments. But the story itself, I just was not into in any way, shape, or form. See, I don't think it's the kind of film that wants you to have sympathy for this guy as a character. It wants you to be involved in the mystery, for sure. I mean, as it goes along, I mean, right off the bat, you're kind of like, I've met plenty of guys like Stephen Yuen's character, Ben, <laughs> in real life, where you're like, not necessarily who are possibly a killer, but who are just really full of themselves, but really good at being super friendly at yeah. the same time and, 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 and loquacious. You're like... Part of me feels like I should really like this person, and the other part deeply resents them and wishes that they were not so full of them shit and per- themselves he, because they're perfect. He, he, he's the rock star from Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where every time he does something, you're like, fuck, man, you're kind of cool. But I don't I hate this, I but it think, doesn't feel real. I don't think your sympathies are ever supposed to be with the main character. Right from the get-go, God. he is a real dolt. I mean, even when you're like, yeah, you used to like bully this girl in school and you masturbate in her apartment while she's gone, you're not a good guy. Uh, I think that's very intentional. You're never supposed I, to care for this. Guy. I, I'm not, I'm not saying that the, the whole sympathizing was necessarily an sure. evil. It's just that in that last act, it's his story and he's, He's making this mystery out of basically no proof other than, hey, she hasn't talked to me ever since I did this really horrible thing. And so it, but it's, I don't know, it just changed the way it felt. It's that third act that worked for me in this film, actually. Because like, like I said, the he is this person that you are very confused how you feel about him. Ben is a person you're very confused how you feel about him. And now there seems to be an honest to God mystery to solve here that gets darker and more nefarious as it goes on. Now, with all that being said, I've read a lot about this movie after the fact because I found myself coming out of it going, you know, I liked it, but I have no idea why people like it as much as they do because people were being hyperbolic in their love for this. So I was like, I do what I do when I'm confused about a film, either me liking it more or less than someone else. I read a lot of reviews from highfalutin reviewers. <laughs> and what I got out of it is this is one of these films that is deeply metaphorical, that these characters are more symbols that – a lot of this is referential to very famous works of literature. Um, it, in fact, is an adaptation of a Haruki Murakami short story called Barn Burning, but not really either. Apparently, like, it only kind of is, but the whole movie on the whole is an interpretation of Murakami's entire writing career, like his oeuvre of writing, which I've never read anything by Murakami, so I have no reference point. But even within that, it's also a reference to William Faulkner, because the title of his book, Barn Burning, is a reference to a William Faulkner story called Barn Burning, which actually is vaguely similar to the plot of the film. And they call Faulkner out two or three times in the movie. They do indeed. makes sense. Um... It, it, you know, I, I, these are things that I get it, and the more I read about it, the more I'm like, okay, I get how this is a really good movie. It's just not made for me at all. There we go. Uh, I'm with you right there on it. I acknowledge that there is a lot of good here, and that if I was that kind of a literature nut, I would probably get a lot out of this. I am not, and so I did not. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, I was going to say, I had it here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, so this is actually out on Blu-ray, and there's a little short thing about the characters with interviews with them, but that's about it. But you know what? Give this movie a try for yourself, because like I said, I know plenty of people who worship this movie. A film I liked a lot more than that that was nominated for uh, 
best foreign language film uh, and actually made it to the finals is Shoplifters. This is a Japanese drama from this director, uh, directed, written, and edited by Hirokazu Koreeda, who's well known for doing films that are really kind of uplifting in bad circumstances type yeah, movies. that's about right. That are really kind of about, like, optimism for the for for humans you know feeling like hey maybe we got a shot after all and shoplifters is certainly in its way a very uplifting film i I think it's it's half that yeah but with the brutal truth of reality added in yeah i mean not with one of those (laughs) oh do you feel good now fuck you yeah it's not really that per se but it definitely has a a level of like You know, I, I think ultimately his message here is that family ain't about blood. You know? Which is a So it's a Fast message. and the Furious film, essentially. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Well, and so the plot of the movie, it, it's about a family, which I'm going to put that in quotes, yeah. uh, who were introduced to them shoplifting in a store through careful precision, which is imminently watchable because, let's be honest, we as Americans love to watch professionals being good at what they do. Indeed. And while heading home one day, they they hear a girl out in the freezing cold who is locked out on her balcony. And we know that they've seen her multiple times before because they talk about the fact that she's out there again. They feel bad for this skinny little thing and take her home. Yeah, she's definitely undernourished, yeah. uh, even bruised. She's like, something is wrong. Yeah. Uh, and they they feed her and give her a place to sleep. And when they go back the next day to return her, hear the mom and dad fighting over her being gone. And they utter the phrase, what was it? Uh, I didn't want her to be born either. And they hear that and are like, yeah, fine. you know what? No, nope, we're not now. giving her back. <laughs> we're keeping her. And they kidnap this little girl. And the movie is just kind of about them living their lives and pulling her into their way of life. Uh, the, the, which is not about nefariousness or, or no. greed. It's about, it's about survival of the entire family. You know what it reminded me a lot of? There was a story that was based on a true story and got turned into a book here and it got turned into a movie, which we've actually covered. Uh, and I, it had Woody Harrelson and I can't remember the title about a, close-knit artistic family who would squat and go from house to house oh, to house yeah. squatting. I'm forgetting and, the name. But yeah, it, it was that same kind of there's a lot of love and a lot of beauty but with this undercurrent of Terry Gilliam horror. Hmm. You know, just like, oh yeah, this is a real, like, this is what Tidelands wanted to be kind of thing. Hmm. But, um, so the movie goes on. A, we watch them bond and form this idea of a family you choose is closer than a family that is born by blood. And we start to see some of the connections that happen. And then an incident occurs and we start peeling back the layers of the real truth behind the family. What I liked is that as we started learning the more nefarious, dark past this group has... They never became villains. No. They were still people who deeply loved each other. It's just that it just emphasizes, the circumstances changed for where they came together. It just emphasizes and underlines yeah. the point. Family is not about who you're related to. It's about who you love and who yeah. you're with and who you support. And like these things that in another movie would have been like, oh, here's the big twist. It's never. It's not really even a twist. No, it's, it's just not. kind it's of just, like oh, uh, things are exposed is. that are like oh, like 
this is a situation was never going to last, and you're kind of a little heartbroken about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're criminals, but they're not going out and stabbing people. They're like doing small shoplifting crimes just in order to make sure their whole family can continue to live, including like an elderly mother who lives in the house, who even her relationship is called into question with everything. I mean, it's an interesting film and a portrait of like Japanese grifters yeah. that, that is unlike any we've seen before. It, it is a unique look into people who are in poverty in Japan that I haven't really seen a lot. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, uh, it was a really beautiful film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I would highly recommend it. Yeah, I agree. I um, would highly recommend it as well. Although, I mean, it it's not... It's not a fish story or one of those that's just, like, yeah. pure happy. Like, th- there is some definite bittersweetness to this. Oh, sure. And there is some darkness. It's just... It's... It's a slow It's burn. darkness with a bit of positivity. Like yeah. like, yeah, you know what? This sucks, but it's okay. We'll get through it. Yeah. You, you end at the end, even though the ending is very bittersweet, you still walk away with a nice feeling. Yeah. And it's just an incredibly well shot, well acted film. Uh, our next film is going all the way back to 1968, the Criterion uh, Collection's re-release of Ingmar Bergman's Shame. Now, this is, like, I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit, outside, for the longest time, outside of, um, uh, what's the one about death? Um, uh, Seventh Seal. Seventh yes. Sign? Seventh Seal. Seal. Uh, is it Seal? Always makes it. One's got know. Demi Moore. It's the one where he plays chess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With Max von Sydow, like every Ingmar Bergman film. Thank you. I so, I, I've never seen an Ingmar Bergman movie except for in this podcast, yeah. and this is the third one I've seen all with Max von Sydow. Well, the thing is, lately I've been getting caught up and watching lots because Criterion's been pumping these out one after another, and I know Bergman's regularly considered to be one of the greatest filmmakers who ever lived, and I'm like, I will keep asking for these as they come out because it's a part of my education in film that has always not been as explored as it should. Uh, like Wild Strawberries, I was so grateful I got to see, and The Virgin Spring, I was really grateful I got yeah. to see. And this is another one of these ones. Shame has been on my list forever, also starring Max von Sydow, in this case as well, Liv Ullman. Although this is considered to be very different from a lot of the other films that he did, which often deal a lot more heavily with theological issues uh, to some degree. This one is not so much. It is a war side story. Yeah, like, so the back of the movie pitches it very much as a drama about an unraveling marriage, mm-hmm. which it is, is technically true, yeah. but yeah, it feels on the like it's missing the forest for the trees. Yeah, I agree. Because, so the movie takes place in... Oh, Holland, I'm going to call it? Yeah, Sweden. Sweden? Yeah. Sweden, uh, Yeah. In the middle of an impending and then culminating civil war, which, as far as I could tell in Google, did not really It's occur. fictional, yeah. Which I, they, they, they keep saying, this is on the heels of World War II. Like, World War II ended not that long ago, because they compare people to yeah. the Nazis at points. But So I, I'm loving the fact that there's this whole new genre of movies that I never knew about fake civil wars that existed in all these countries that like, I, I don't really see that in America. Uh, I, I see invasion movies, but never yeah. civil war they're movies. Future movies. And so they're kind of really interesting, but it's this couple who quite frankly, from the very second you meet them, they have a shit marriage. Yeah. I thought, although and they do fuck a lot. They do fuck a lot. They also <laughs> pick at each other and push each other's buttons and yeah. Tr- are clearly resentful of each other. I mean, it's not to the, I don't want to give you the impression that it's like War of the Roses or something. They actually have plenty of nice moments, too, where they're getting along just fine, but things often very quickly take a turn south as they find exactly how to say the things to piss each other off. True. Um, and, yeah, yeah they're, the movie develops for a while with that and people going, you know the war is coming, y'all better make ready with them 
basically making ready to say, okay, we should probably think about getting out of here and going somewhere else because it looks like the invasion, like the war is going to break out here. And before they get a chance to, the war, in fact, breaks out there. Yeah, it's it's actually not terribly long into the movie when that happens. Mm-hmm. Like It's a very calm film, so it feels like a while, but it's like 30 or 40 minutes into a two-hour, like a two or a slightly over two-hour movie. But it, it moved along pretty well. Only and 103 it, minutes, believe it Once it got to that section of, okay, the war has begun and we're dealing with them trying to navigate this new war-torn home that they're in... It got really good. I got super into the movie. Well, I mean, I, I think on the whole, like Bergman is experiment is less interested in the war than he is specifically what it does to people who are not even part of it, like people like who live in the place where yeah. war is happening, and how that can quickly make people who have a, a facade of basic like. Uh, courtesy and humanity on them disintegrate to being base out for the just out for themselves people and we watched two very different personalities with Liv Ullman and Max von Sydow take two very different well, they, perspectives on how to behave when this is going on it's it's a complete flip of their power dynamic mm-hmm. like he, he definitely Max von Sydow starts as this aggravatingly a cloying guy who is overwhelmed with emotion on numerous occasions and just has to sit and have a cry where she is cutting and biting and in charge and pushing him and prodding him in every step. And it is really interesting to watch the movie as it goes on. She becomes more and more withdrawn as he becomes more and more powerful and confident in his actions, especially once a few particular events happen that I'm not going to go into. Right. Uh, I think this is a fascinating exploration of humanity. It's like I said, 103 minutes for a Bergman film. That's really short. Um, and I enjoyed every frame of this because it's so gorgeously shot as you expect from a Bergman film. It is, of course, in black and white, but I don't think this is, I would put in like top, like the most critics wouldn't even say this is one of the very most essential Bergman films to see, but it's not one of the ones we're skipping either. No, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, it's a niche film. I think he was considered thematically part of a trilogy of films he did that in some way were about or surrounding war. Uh, but those were not usually the ones you feel here mentioned in a breath of conversation about, you know, like quite frankly, it's the, the movie about a couple unraveling is one that I typically do not like, Mm -hmm. uh, just cause man, I've been there. It hurts. That's real pain. Um, and so if this is the first one of this genre, and it's, I guess, because of the war backdrop that I really got into, it appealed to me in a way that a lot of other movies of this type wasn't or don't, like, I would recommend this is a movie worth checking out, even if you don't normally like relationship dramas, just because it, it plays more about a couple trying to survive a tough situation than it is. This is about a breakup. Yeah. The subtext is very evident here, uh, which in and of itself is almost more the text than, as you said, the back of the box describes it as, uh, it is a really interesting movie about that dynamic and as well, we're seeing now, it's still always amazing that Criterion, after so many Ingmar Bergman releases, still manages to find new, really cool Bergman extra features to dig up. But sure enough, they managed to do here as well. Uh, there's a couple of interviews with the director that took place around the time of the production and then just after release, um, including a news story on the film's production, which aired in 1967. Uh, there is uh, it's a 
going over the production, lots of inter- interview questions with Bergman on whether or not the conflict that was going on right then in, in Vietnam had any influence on there, on the film, which it does and it doesn't. It's an interesting interview, actually, where he talks, he, he's like kind of con- both confirms and denies that Vietnam is, was on his mind. Bergman, a fascinating guy and really interesting to listen to talk. Uh, Liv Ullman has a brand new interview for this release talking about this period of Bergman's career, uh, which he was in a couple different, she was in a couple different films with, um, uh, the hour of the wolf persona and the passion of Anna. Uh, but the biggest feature here is a 72 minute program made for New York's public access station, WNET in 1968 called an introduction to Ingmar Bergman, uh, which has lots of uh, clips and interviews with Bergman, Ullman and Max von Sydow going over his entire career leading up to shame. Um, and there, of course, is an insert booklet. But yeah, this is if you are consider yourself a fan of Bergman or you just consider yourself someone who wants to get a really good education in film. This is kind of yeah. essential. Relief. Check it out. Uh, next up is a film called The Golem. And by the way, not Gollum, like my wife includes, uh, insists on saying it. I looked it up. <laughs> it is, in fact, Golem <laughs> when you're talking about the Jewish die play on that monster. Hill, Chris. You I die did. On that I hill. was like, I like, look, I will show you multiple places where it says it's Golem. It's like, no, Gollum. It's Gollum. interesting. Before we get into this movie, you talk about going down the rabbit hole of Googling. This is the movie that sent me down the rabbit hole because at one point there is a character with a gun. Which I swear to God, I saw a revolver the first time the gun existed. It is not, but I spent like I paused the movie and was like, "This doesn't make sense from a historical standpoint." And I spent forty-five minutes looking up plagues and the history of the Jewish people in this era, and when revolvers and different technologies were invented, and was convinced for half of this film that this is a weird, like, fantasy steampunk universe, and they're just low-key making a sci-fi film until, no, no, I just missed all the gun. This is a really rare horror film in that there aren't a lot, in fact, almost no, straight-up, very embroiled in Jewish culture horror films, which is weird because when you read about, like, actual Jewish mysticism, there's a lot of really creepy, scary stuff in it. Like, there's a movie called... I want to say it was called The Possessed, maybe, or Just Possessed, that was about a Dybbuk box. I think Possessed. That came out a couple of years ago that wasn't bad. It's not great, but wasn't bad. It was an American thriller thing. That was like, okay, you don't get to see this ever. So maybe on Supernatural once. <laughs> <laughs> and then this guy, uh, Doron Paz and his brother, made a movie called Jerusalem with a big Z because it was zombies. Which was, yeah, uh, I've actually heard of that. Yeah, but uh, this is the most Jewish horror movie ever made, uh, which in and of itself attracted me to, to it because I'm like, I love it when horror explores things we haven't really seen before. Yeah. And the golem is a, is a monster that has been barely explored in horror. It's a cool monster, and quite frankly, for all that I am very much a not-religious person, I love religious horror, because it's always really interesting, and it always preys on... tend to be the same way. Anything that preys on our faith, I find to be intriguing. Uh, Haney Furstenberg plays Hannah, and this is the 17th century in Lithuania. She lives in a small village. Uh, She's married to a good man who, like, despite the fact she hasn't given him a child for some time, and even the the rabbi going, you know, our law says you can dump her. Yeah. She hasn't given you a child yet. She's not doing her job. And he's like, no, I love her. She's my wife. Well, 
she is much more interested in, uh, in the mythology and she hangs out under the baseboards of where the men get together and, and study Jewish mysticism texts and, well, and learning everything she can about, uh, Kabbalism and the sort she, of, she's thing. kind of the equivalent of a witch where she's like, she's trying to learn the magic and use it in a way that like, I really don't care about whether or not this is in accordance with my faith. I want to use this to better our lives. Right. I mean, she's not, actually doing that at that point as near as we can tell. She's just she's details she's later. It. She's into it. And she kind of wishes there wasn't. She very much openly wishes there wasn't this gender division that said women don't get to do this. Yeah. Uh, which, like I said, she's, sne- she's sneaking in listens, eavesdropping to learn stuff. So anyway, the uh, Goyim on the outside are having the Black Plague and they basically show up and go, hey, uh, people are dying and we're pretty sure it's your fault because you were Jews and that's what it says in the book here when something's wrong, <laughs> blame the Jews. And they go, so here's the deal. We're going to sit on top of your village. And my daughter, the main guy's like, my daughter's got it. And if your healer village woman, not the same person we we're talking about here, not the wife, uh, can't fix her, we're going to start killing people. And they're like, oh, shit, because he's she's not going to be able to heal someone with this plague. And they're yeah, worried because like, we don't want the plague. plague brought in here. So, uh, you know, the, the Hannah's like, okay. Nobody's going to do anything. I'm going to do something. And she, having heard the story of the golem, which is a mystical figure built out of clay that they put the word of God, the name of God into to activate it, uh, it becomes this huge defender. And she creates one that, unlike a little preview we see in the beginning with a giant, like the thing sized golem, hers takes the form of like a little boy, which is appropriate because they apparently seven years before she had lost her own child at about that age. And she, it's also made pretty clear that this is explicitly why she has not given him a child in so much because she can't handle the idea of another kid dying. But this kid who is, like I said, looks, you know, aside from initially being covered in clay, she's able to wash it off. He just looks like a kid with sometimes creepy eyes, but in action, he's like the girl from Logan. <laughs> oh, dude. Well, he like, not only is he basically unkillable, super strong, he can blow people up with his mind. Yeah. Which is a, was a weird extra take that I kind of wish they hadn't, they had left yeah. out. I was like, that, I like where he's running around ripping people's limbs off, but like, why does he have telekinetic brain explosions? Well, because if you do it once, why is that not just what you're doing? Why not just doing? do that? You know, yeah. maybe he only gets, maybe he's got like in games where the little charger <laughs> has to go back <laughs> up. He's going to work know? up his chaos meter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think this is a movie that's more of an interesting idea and, and good detail than it is actually a solid good yeah. movie all the way across. You so know, it, it's, it's certainly suffered, not scary. It suffered from having muddied water. So that there's basically two different plots going on. There is, the Jewish community dealing with the Gentiles who are basically saying, we're going to kill you all. And then there's her equating this golem with her dead child yeah. and thinking that she has a relationship with it that she does not. Right. And so I feel like either one could have been an interesting story, but together they just uh, lessen the other because the movie will spend some time making it look like she's going to use this golem to get unholy vengeance on her own people and those that wrong her. And then it'll flip and she's using it righteously to go after the Gentiles. And I found myself really enjoying when they were going after the, the non-Jewish people. But every time that dwelled into her dealing with that, it, I, 
I didn't buy it. Yeah. Like, it just seemed... Not the fault of the actress, who I thought was no, quite good in No, this. she does a great job. It's more of, I feel like it was a script issue. Like, yeah, they should absolutely. have picked to either make her the bad guy or make her the righteous warrior instead of kind of half and half. Despite being relatively low budget, I think on the whole it looks pretty good. It just, yeah, it falters in that third act in a way that it's building nicely, but then it doesn't seem to really exactly know how to make its emotional content yeah. jive with the, the action horror stuff that's That happening. being said, the kills are pretty cool. They are cool. Uh, and there's it's well shot. There's some interesting bits where they get into uh, how, the Jewish faith. And one thing I really liked is that the golem is a secret for all of about five minutes. Yeah. And after that, everybody knows it's out. There's no pretending it's her boy. It's yeah. just, no, this is a golem, and nobody has any qualms about yeah, that. A lot of people I, are I like, like, hooray! Yeah. And the older people are like, this is not going to go the way you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Golems are great for the first day or two. And then after that, <laughs> not so much. Um, they're always looking for that ring. Oh, wait, sorry, that's gone. Yeah, like, like, uh, no, honestly, no. if you're into horror or you're into any kind of movie that's about a culture that you don't necessarily get to see represented in cinema too often, check this out. It is a worthy watch. It's just, it has some issues. Yeah. Um, there is a audio commentary with the directors as well as the writer. There's deleted scenes, some making of uh, featurettes that actually get into the soundtrack as well, which I thought was quite good. Uh, an interview c- conducted at 2018's Fright Fest and then the trailers. All right. So let us move on to our next film, which is well, our next films. All right. I'm going to call it here. I have never before seeing these films, had never actually watched the Hostel films. Oh, God. So, uh, funny fact, I watched these in theaters, and when re-watching them, the first one especially, I kind of had a an eye-opening moment about who I used to be, because I distinctly remember going to see this movie in theaters. The first one. And the first one. And everybody going oh my God, these are horrible people and this is a shit movie because of it. And I remember coming out of this movie going, you know, they're kind of assholes, but they're not really that bad. (laughs) And and I genuinely really enjoyed this when I saw it in theaters originally. I skipped this because I hated Cabin Fever when everyone else loved it. I I didn't like Cabin Fever I could not stand it. And I was like, I don't... That guy, there's something about him that just bugs me. And then reports of this film being, at this point, already one of the few things I've ever seen that came out and completely divided the horror community, which usually is pretty tight-knit, which is, is torture porn a thing? Or if it is, is it good or bad? And Hostel was sort of the poster child for that. And I was like, I don't want to see that. I've seen films that other people described as torture porn at that point, although the term is now tossed around extremely too loosely. Um, And I did not like those other films, so I'm probably not going to like this either. And I know I haven't cared for Eli Roth's output on the whole, so maybe I'll just skip it. But, you know, it was one of those when they offered to me, this is Mill Creek, and they're putting out a double feature, both of them in one package on Blu-ray. I was like, what the hell? You know, this is films horror fans talk about. I should probably give them a shot. And I am ultimately glad that I did finally see these movies, much to my surprise. um, And it's funny because critics really preferred the second film. Audiences did not and thought the first film was better. Well, I can tell you this is proof positive that audiences are wrong a lot of the time because the first film is just exactly what I thought it was going to be with, like, unlikable characters, lots and lots of extended torture violence sequences, barely any humor. Um, It's just, it goes exactly where you think it's going to go, and that's about it. I have to call out that in, in the era we live in today, unlikable characters is 
is a fair understatement. These are three of the worst human beings I've ever seen. Yeah, it's two college like, students with an older guy who they met along the way, a uh, slightly older guy, who are traveling in Europe. Um, and they're, of course, go to Amsterdam because they want to get laid. And they I, I think party. the very first line any of them have in the movie is, I can't rail this girl who's sitting at a table with them. I can't rail her. She's too high. Like, that may be the first line in the movie. It's but not good. I, I guarantee you two of these guys raped people in college. Like, so they're just horrible. They meet a guy on a train who's like, oh, you're trying to get laid in all these places. What you're missing up is the place they don't tell you about. There's this amazing hostel in Slovenia, Slovakia. Bratislava. Yeah, Bratislava. I can't uh, remember Which is that. the city in Slovakia, <laughs> um, which is, like, the best, which is, like, all the girls there are dying to fuck you. Like, uh, like nowhere yes. else you've ever been. They, they hear your American accents and they just fuck you like that. And you're like, I know, it, like, I'm like, that's not the way it goes. Well, surprisingly, it's exactly how it goes. They get there and, like, these supermodels are immediately like, let's have sex. And yeah. they do. <laughs> and you're like, when does this turn into a horror film? Other than the fact these guys are horrible and don't deserve to have sex with supermodels. Um, and... It becomes clear that these girls are the uh, oh, what is the the, the spy term? I forgot. They're, they're the uh, honey, honey trap. Yeah, the honey trap. Yeah. Of uh, to get these guys basically captured, brought to this place where really rich people can pay to torture and murder people that are kept in cells that have been abducted from countries all over the world. The, yeah, okay, so that's the plot. Um, this and of course, all but one of these guys dies. Uh, move on to Hostel Two. Which does the one thing which I still find unforgivable in horror that I hate when you take, start your movie with the survivor from the first film yep. and then kill them off horribly almost immediately. Yep. The, I the, can't stand that. The very first 10 minutes of this movie should be cut out of it and it would be yep. double the movie. It serves no purpose yep. other than to tie it to the first one, which is unnecessary. You know what's fun too? I actually like that actor. Like yeah, he's I done some really good stuff since. <laughs> uh, but in this case, they're like, they smartly go, okay, instead of dudes, what about we get like some ladies in here with a, uh, Lauren German, Heather Matazero, Baiju Phillips. You're like, okay, good call. So, yeah, nice, good actresses. They're good actresses. They drop the let's go on a fuck tour. And instead it's three girls just kind of trying to enjoy themselves on a trip across Europe. Only one of them is a dick, and that's kind of her character. Yeah. And the other two are genuinely interesting, nice and people. Kind of. They're just a little, like, hyper. Uh, she's kind of a dick to her friend. Yeah. But, but yeah, you, you but follow not them. Terrible. In this case, she's still like, enjoyable. They're not going to, they don't want to go to, to, like, a whorehouse or a club. They want to go to a really nice spa, which is fair. It's yeah. a really nice spa. Once again, payoff. <laughs> They're yep. like they actually say what you will about the the torture camps in in uh, Slovakia. When they promise you something first, you get it in spades. <laughs> in this case, it's like a spa I would go to. But they, of course, get captured, brought to place, rinse, repeat. Except, wow, does this find a different way to tell that well, story from that point on, and where the story ends up going? So the movie is a lot more interested in telling kind of both sides of the story. We see a lot more about what's behind the scenes. And also, quite frankly, the setup is a lot more believable. Watching the first one, it blew me away how that does not feel like what a rich guy would pay to go to. Like, it's some shitty warehouse in the middle of nowhere that's just run down and gone. Here, at least, like, they have security. 
security. They have yeah. multiple levels. It's to much keep more believable. I'm like that. I buy uh, as well. I will say the first one, honestly, like although it's very gory and the gore is of high quality, if that's what you're looking for, none of it is that interestingly conceived of. It's yeah. all very bare basic. This one has some wacky tableaus that happen, like where you're like, wow, that was really creative. The kills are really creative. There's a few sequences, like the, there's a scene when two guys who are going to kill people who we follow throughout the movie arrive, and the entire sequence of them getting ready and dressed and going down to the rooms is done without audio. You just hear this really fun European music playing over it that works so well. Uh, can I say as well? I think this is like one of my new favorite endings of a horror movie ever. <laughs> like <laughs> well, the whole, the whole like that point where we get into, we like we know this is looking at the right time. We know this is going to wrap up soon. Well, well she's got to get away, right? The the solution they come up for that with made me I have to pause it. I was laughing so loud. I was like, you've got to be kidding. That's awesome. And then with an epilogue just to give you that little cherry on top of the cake uh, that was also just super funny. What, what I love is that Eli Roth who. By every account I've heard and every bit of PR I've ever seen is kind of a douche. Yeah. Has accidentally made, well before it was a thing, one of the most woke horror movies I've ever seen. <laughs> like, if Hostel 2 came out today, the alt-right would be decrying it as feminist propaganda. Oh, they did then. And you know what? You know what I really want? Uh, like, watching Hostel 2, I kind of want to see Hostel 3 continue down the path of, like, the the surviving characters and exploring more of the world. I would watch another movie. Well, there is was, a Hostel 3, realize. I mean, is there an actual Hostel 3? It's a, To all reports, really bad. Oh. See, in my mind, it was going to be this action thriller with the main character dismantling this group then in like a completely different kind of movie. Nope. It's but, just more or less the same. Okay, well then yeah, never with mind. A, with another twist at the end, except... Because uh, I read the whole synopsis. I'm like, I'm never going to watch this, so I'll just read the synopsis on Wikipedia. I was like, okay, I can see how this movie, why people didn't like it. Like, it's twist just, is really like annoying. Like In all honesty... I think people should see Hostel 2. Yeah, I don't, you don't even 1. need to see Hostel you 1. You don't ever need to see it. Just just know that the guy in the beginning of Hostel 2 is a little shit and deserves what he gets. And then continue on into the actually really interesting horror I, film. I will say one thing annoys me about both of them. Although in the second one, the kill in question is really cool. Um, Eli Roth obviously trying to be more meta than thou has a thing where whichever character is the innocent virginal one is going to be the first to get it as opposed to being the big survivor. So he tries to point you at, Oh, they're clearly the final girl or final survivor person. And then they die almost immediately. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and get it hard. Well, you know what? You're right. It, it's a really gorgeous kill in this movie. It's really cool. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, really it gets cool. totally Countess Elizabeth Bathory. I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah, it was awesome. Cool. All right. So our last horror film is, uh, man, I am sorry for making you watch this. This is American Nightmare. <laughs> this oh, is by Ro- Rusty Kundieff and Darren Scott, who are the guys behind the Tales from the Hood movie series. And oh, I'll be honest. I saw the first Tales from the Hood, not the second one. I saw the first Tales from the Hood and thought, everyone always told me this is totally awful. And I actually thought it was kind of entertaining. See, I've heard Tales from the Hood is actually good. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's an anthology, so it's a mixed bag. But there are some parts that are pretty damn good in it, I thought, even in a sort of, this is super campy and silly, but it's fun. American Nightmares is not fun, despite having a rather interestingly large cast of people, which I can only assume are there because 
I guess Tales from the Hood still has some credit in oh, people's dude, heads. I, I was watching this movie and texting with a friend who she she hates horror films but loves my reaction to all the weird shit that you make me watch. <laughs> and I was live texting her every time a new cameo happened, just being like, What the fuck is the show Nicole? Oh my god, it's them. Vivica A. Fox just showed up. What the hell? Uh so the the anthology wraparound is there are two computer hackers who basically through technology that doesn't exist are scanning private signals to get which nude videos and shit, I guess. I'm not going to lie. I didn't even understand that for a while because all the, in quotes, private videos they show are basically softcore Cinemax porn yeah. that are like, no, no, we framed her tits. This is not on accident. They clearly are, fr- are doing this for the yes. camera. <laughs> um, but suddenly the, the feed is interrupted by Danny Trejo, who is the crypt keeper for this movie, Mr. Malevolent, who sits sitting in his smoking jacket and his drinks that's describing uh, in horror host ways what they're about to see next for each anthology sequence. Uh, and here's the sequence we have. First up is Mates, which is a lady tries out a new online dating site after her her uh, boyfriend is really abusive, and uh, the guy who she ends up showing up is like the most awesome sex robot of all time, um, th- which honestly I thought was the funniest of all. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm right there with you. So when this, as we'll get into these. I really enjoyed the first one and was totally into it. Like, okay, they're acting horribly, but it's it's probably on purpose. It's goofy fun. And with each successive one, I liked this movie less and less. Well, because they became more of a... Each one was more of a wah-wah yeah. joke. And um, there's one in the middle that I'll call it out when you get to it that it broke me and I... After that, I was like, you know what? Fuck you, movie. I'm not into you at all in any way. Uh, next up is The Prosecution with Jay Marr, who's the attorney general who's running for governor of Texas, uh, p- partially on the fact that he's gotten so many death penalty convictions, and the guilty party in question makes an escape and begins stalking him, or does he? Who uh, is the guy from My Name is Earl, who is the... Oh, okay. I didn't catch yeah. that. He was oh. the uh, the new husband of the Earl's ex-wife. Uh, following up the, is White Flight, which is the most wah-wah of a joke of the thing. I was and like, come on. that's the one that pissed me off and which broke me for the total this racist movie. and his racist family that somehow have bought a time machine online. No, no, and, dimensional. Or no, a dimensional transporter. Yes. And decide to go to a world where that is entirely racist so they can be happy. But they go to said town. And the, I'm just going to tell you guys, the wah-wah is like, they're like, yeah, no black people. And in that case, they mean black-haired people. They're fine with people whose skin is black as long as their hair isn't black, which, by the way, would be yeah, pretty and, much all of them, but not and, in this movie. And, like you said, I'm, I'm calling it out. Whole family dies, except for him, and then we get to watch a baby get murdered in slow-mo. Yeah, like, really nasty. Like, I, I was like, fuck you, movie. This, this is it. I don't care about anything else you do after this. Uh, then we have The Samaritan, which is uh, a prostitute that shows up to, to deal with a dying guy. Who was the dying guy again? It was a, a guy from Saturday Night Live. Uh, uh, Chris Klein? Is that his name? Not Klein. Chris, no, it's uh, not Chris Klein. It's Chris, the guy who used to play the monkey guy on Saturday Night Live. I couldn't tell no, you his name. I'm sorry. sorry. But um, he's very sick. And he's like, okay, I want you to dress up like this clown, put the makeup on, and it turns out he's a serial killer. That, that's oh, Chris Kattan. Yeah, Chris Kattan. Uh, it's okay. It starts and, and off it interesting. It becomes and, a ghost movie. And, yeah, and then that whole aspect was like, okay, I don't know where. Then we have Hate Radio, which is a uh, Alex Jones-style radio host who, uh, except focusing really on the misogyny, who suddenly becomes a woman, and yeah. literally that's all it's got. Yeah, that's it. He just becomes a woman and, for no reason. Yeah. And, like, it's just... Uh, and then we have the healer, which is a uh, evangelist who um, 
gets abducted and has to deal with all the shitty things he's done to the people in his flock, uh, whatever. And then Thy Will Be Done, which is a lady who's abducted by a family who wants to prevent her having an abortion. And, of course, it turns out her baby is Satan. So, yeah. I, it it This is a terrible movie. It's bad. Don't like, see the, this. The very first segment, if you can find it on YouTube, is funny. And the reveal that it's a robot is awesome. Yeah. And it's so horribly acted, it's it's amazingly good. And everything else is atrocious and unwatchable. Yeah, agreed. Our last film this week is a multiple Oscar award-winning Bohemian Rhapsody. Look, I'm going to flat out say this here. I am not really interested in discussing any more than everyone else already has whatever might outrage you about this film. I think 95% of said outrage is like, you're bothered because it's not, strictly speaking, clinging to absolute life. Have you ever seen a biopic before? I mean, did you, I didn't hear anybody getting outraged when the Johnny Cash movie constantly changed the so story what, and I had took no things idea out there of was, time. I had no idea there was that much outrage about this movie. Oh, tons. And I'm just, and a lot of it is the most, like the most I can figure out that on any level I can go, well, okay, I guess is that they're mad that like, um, he had AIDS before Live Aid, and apparently he didn't. And there's things about how his communication with the band about it and how it happened. I was oh. like, I'm not really sure how any of that is offensive. It just seemed like they organized it the way they did for dramatic effect. But why does that offend you so much? Uh, and then because it's clean. And then people going, oh, but it's very unclear. The movie doesn't decide that he, a lot of people want him to be absolutely gay. A lot of people want him to be absolutely bisexual, and have decided firmly that they are the only people. People who are correct about this issue, and both of those groups are extremely upset about the movie not taking a stand on said issue. The only thing I can understand is the movie spends way more time with his relationship with his his one heterosexual relationship in his life than it does with his homosexual relationship. But ultimately, the, I think this movie's biggest error is that, other than really shoddy editing, I can't believe it won for best editing. Good God! I was like, man, the editing is so sloppy here, and really tropey hoary cliched like biopic stuff like even having newspapers spinning at the screen and stuff uh, headlines um it's that this should have been about queen and it's and it was advertised this movie's going to be about queen about the whole band and it's not really it's it, and i'm really shocked that queen was and and the families of queen including Freddie mercury's family were deeply involved in the making of it because it is so decidedly and utterly a, Fre a freddie mercury film and i do think that uh, overall though certainly versus the competition i don't think rami malek deserved his best actor oscar oh really uh, no because uh. Uh, i'll give you one one re one comparative reason Ryan Mock lip-synced all the songs in this movie. Bradley Cooper wrote and performed and sang all the songs in his yeah, movie. So, <laughs> I, I admittedly, I haven't seen that one yet. It's, it's really on my good. list. Um, and, and I still think Daveed Diggs should have been the best actor, but that's neither here nor there. Like, I, I think that this was an okay movie. Like, I'm honestly not offended by anything. I didn't think no. it was amazing. I agree that the editing was Agreed. atrocious and... That There's this a lot of winning cliches. best editing was one of two things that really infuriated me about the Oscars. Um, but like, I thought Rami Malek did an amazing job playing Freddie Mercury. Like to me, this is a so-so movie that my mom will love <laughs> with one of the better performances of the year in it. And, 30 minutes of concert footage, but which is the highlight of the film. Yeah. Though. Well, just cause it's, 
fucking Queen songs. Yay, Queen. I mean, but, it's it's their, them recreating the Live Aid concert, and it's done really well. Yeah, I mean, by the time you get to it, you are amped up to see it, and it's they do a pretty badass job with it. Yeah, they do, but it doesn't necessarily make a great movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it, this was entertaining, and I had a good time watching it, but this was nowhere near the top ten movies of the year no, for me. not even close. Um, like, I, I will it's, say... It's, it, an, it's an audience pleaser movie. It, it, thank you. This is the... This is kind of like Green Book and a couple other movies that came out this year. Like, you know what? Watch this. Show it to your parents. They're going to really enjoy it. This is a harmless fluff movie with just one really great performance. And you know what? A free queen concert. Yeah. I mean, if a documentary about Freddie Mercury made huge errors, I would be upset. Yeah. When a big Hollywood biopic makes mistakes in the life of someone... Like I said, have you ever seen a biopic before? They all make drastic changes for narrative effect, and I didn't find that any of the change personally any of the changes in here were actually uh, I was not I've been looking well. to try and find an argument that explains how those changes are offensive, other than they're not what actually happened, which is not offensive in and of itself. I, I will say I not, I'm kind of intrigued to see if the shifting hands behind the scenes is partly why this movie ended up so messy. Oh, I'm surprised. I mean, like, well, because like, Brian so, Singer. So this is... was the movie that um, Brian. Oh my god, I just blinked. Brian Singer. Name. Thank you. That Brian Singer was making, and he was ostensibly fired for not showing up on set. But like, let's be honest. I think that it was very much the upcoming hashtag Me Too reveal on him being kind of a terrible human being was right. about to strike. Totally, and a so terrible human he being. got fired just. I, I, I want to say it's after he had already shot over 50% of the movie, so he's still on the credits as the director, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was a DGA decision, and he did direct the bulk of this. Literally, the guy who came in, I forget, something Fisher, um, basically assembled the footage. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm really curious to see how that affected the movie we got. Like, was there indeed this much of an emphasis on Live Aid in the original movie? Is the editing really this bad, or did they just not have time to finish some of the stuff? Because... Oh my god, this editing is horrible. There is a clip online of them just having a meeting at a restaurant, and it just says, hey, just pay attention to the edits. And there's, I think, 150 edits in about a four-minute sequence. It's edited like a Fast and the Furious clone, but it's people sitting around a diner having a conversation. Total reports is because Singer just incompetently filmed this, and they had to cut it to pieces to make a salvageable film. Yeah. I mean, maybe that was it. It was a holy shit. We can't believe you managed to save this fucking thing. And like, award. It, it's interesting. I, I used to really respect Singer as a filmmaker. Of course, he made some truly great films but early in just, his career. He keeps turning out mediocre at best movies. Everything after, uh, actually, really, a lot of what he made before Days of Future Past and everything after has just been unwatchable. But even so, it seems to be very little doubt. You know, with the sheer amount of people that are that are coming out, that this guy is a dangerous human being, a bad person. And I really, the the fact that this did not come out anytime recently, this has been known for years now and advertised for years and the studio just ignored it and hired him anyway for this film. And then like, although there have been, I mean, the, the truth is everyone was like, no, it's true. He would just not show up on set. Like they'd be calling him and calling him and he wouldn't be there. And they'd be like, uh, where's the second AD or first AD? We'll get him to film some stuff. I oh, guess. And he's uh, still and just, making a movie and, and was being mean to everyone else on there. I mean, I, with the studio, I'm like, first off, he never should have hired him in the first place, but it really is unforgivable that you, 
I mean, you made your money and then some off this film in studios. You shouldn't have pushed it for awards. You should have backed away from the fucking thing and said, no, we made our money. Okay. We don't need to make this even worse by doubling down for yeah. this. I mean, even, uh, uh, Rami Malik was very, had, was vocal in some interviews saying, dude, th- this guy was an asshole the whole time. Singer was a real asshole. I never would work with him again. And he's making um, Red Sonia and they've explicitly. No, that's actually, they've now said that's not happening. Wait, really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not okay. surprisingly. Although, uh, it's like the eighth time a Red Sonia movie has been You know been what? I, I want them to ke- keep making the movie just. With someone else. Not with him. Yeah. Maybe a female director? Just say. Yeah. Just maybe. Um, anyway, I, you know, like I said, there's obviously, I said I wasn't going to get into the outrage about this and here we are doing it anyway. It's hard <laughs> not to discuss. I do think this film is regardless of being sloppy. It's like a good TV movie ultimately with a really well done live aid sequence. Um, I, you get into the Queen music is great. And I think if you're just watching it on a shallow side here, it is good. But if you're looking for a bio, uh, an actual, like this is really what happened once again, don't watch biopics looking for something. Yeah, that's no, it's not really a documentary. True, true story. Um, so this is out on 4K and Blu-ray, and there's a certain degree of bonus features here. Although there really is one, though, if you did enjoy this, that I think makes us well worth uh, getting, which is the complete uh, Live Aid uh, experience. They did like the, all of the songs in their entirety. They show you can watch it with this is the whole bit of them doing Which, every song from start to finish well, good that they live should. sequence in 4K as a bonus feature. And that's okay. That's really cool. That is the highlight of this film um, for 21 minutes and 55 seconds. So you're saying buy this movie for the live age. No, 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 no. Don't buy it. Steal it. <laughs> uh, Rami Malek. <laughs> just kidding. Rami Malek uh, on Becoming Freddy, 16 minutes. I will say again, it's true. Freddie Mercury's teeth were very... What's the right pronounced? Word? Pronounced. Pro, they protubed. I don't know. They <laughs> were protuberance. They protruded, protruded. <laughs> but not to the cartoonish degree that Rami Malek's. There's a slight difference, but it's enough to make Rami Malek look pretty cartoonish. And I think they should have toned it, pulled it back a little bit here. But hey, man, the guy managed to act through those fucking things. So points. Uh, the look and sound of Queen for 21 minutes. The interviews with the cast talking about the band itself. Uh, and then a documentary on how they did, in fact, recreate the Live Aid uh, sequence. So, yeah. Anyway, that's it. That's yeah, our show. There we go. Uh, I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say it was... A whole lot of okay with a couple of nice moments in it. <laughs> uh, indeed. Um, but I think, what did we say? A Widows was going to be the pick yeah, of the yeah, week? Yeah, Widows is my pick of the week, definitely. For all that it's a, it's still definitely a flawed movie. Steve McQueen really blew me away with the style. And, and like, oh, I can't emphasize how much I love where they went at the very end of the movie. Well, don't forget to use our Amazon links, which are the pictures of the movies on the page itself, to click on to buy stuff through Amazon. Not even just that movie in particular, but whatever you might be shopping for on Amazon, start off with our Amazon links. We get a nice little kickback. Can't hoit, right? But what even more can't hoit is if you get – now I'm talking about like Rami Malek if he was really a Looney Tunes character (laughs) – is to become a subscriber. Once again, that is what helps us the most. And you're going to be seeing a lot of stuff in that subscriber Facebook group very shortly because South by Southwest is starting in less than a week. And I will be there with a bunch of the crew, including me and Martin Thomas going to be on the town. Uh, we won't be, probably won't be tap dancing, but still we will be probably drinking heavily and eating lots of barbecue and talking to famous people. And all that video of that stuff is going to be popping up live as it goes in that Facebook group. So now is the time. If you've ever been interested to become a subscriber to, one of us.net. Uh, there's one more digital noise coming out before 
South by, assuming everything goes to plan, which should be on Wednesday, uh, maybe maybe even in the evening. I'm going to be cramming a lot of shit into the Wednesday before South by starts. But I don't doubt. Yeah, yeah, with with John Golson. But um, until then, uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>